Well, church bulletins are a very helpful means of communication. That's why we put them together. You'll find in them an order of service, announcements, song lyrics, scripture readings. But bulletins are not normally meant to be a form of entertainment. But occasionally, there are misprints in bulletins that are rather humorous. Now, never at Redeemer Church. There's never been an error, never been a misprint, never been a grammatical problem in one of our bulletins. But some churches, and some churches you may find a mistake in their bulletins. One pastor I know put together a sampling of church bulletin misprints. I shared a couple of these years ago, but I have a list of church bulletin misprints. And I just wonder if maybe you've had enough coffee today that you could be able to discern some of the bulletin mistakes or misprints. So listen to a few of these. Together, or sorry, today the pastor will preach his farewell message after which the choir will sing Break Forth into Joy. It's a good one. How about this one? The choir will meet at the Smith House on Saturday for fun and sinning. Just one letter, right? Just one letter makes all the difference. Next week, we will begin a new 9.30 a.m. worship service. The 11 a.m. will be hell as usual. Again, just one letter. How about this one? Ladies, don't forget the church rummage sale of your used items. It's a good chance to get rid of things not worth keeping around the house. Bring your husbands. <laughs> I hear some ladies are laughing extra loud over here in the middle. Not going to ask why. This last one is most unfortunate. Weight Watchers Weight Loss Group will meet at 7 a.m. Please use the large double doors in the side entrance. I mean, the doors are just big. It wasn't meant to offend, but those are church bulletins gone bad. Someone should have been editing, editing a little more closely. Those are some unfortunate misprints. Well, at first glance, there appears to be misprints or mistakes in our passage this evening. Not humorous misprints, but rather ones of a more serious nature. Our whole passage looks like a misprint. Everything about it is shocking. Our first thought when we read the entire passage is this can't be in the Scriptures. It can't be in the Bible. And we're going to see three, three misprints, three apparent misprints, three shocking things in our text tonight. So if you're taking notes, three shocking things. First, the perverted worship of God. Second, the disturbing word of God. And third, the quiet work of God. The perverted worship, number one. The disturbing word, number two. And then lastly, in the midst of it all, we'll see the quiet work of God. Well, the first shocking thing is the perverted worship of God. Look at verse 12. You'll see the entire passage is printed in your bulletin on page 3 and 4. If you don't have a Bible or a, or a device, you can follow along in your bulletins. And that, look there at the very first verse, the very first words. The sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. 
Well, this has to be a misprint, right? I mean, these are the leaders of the worship center at Shiloh. And the sons of Eli, they were the priests. They're described as worthless men. They don't know the Lord. They're unconverted. Now, of course, they knew about the Lord. They were religious men, ministers, clergy. They read and taught the Bible, led sacrifices and worship at Shiloh. They spent time in fellowship with God's people. They knew the Lord, but they didn't know the Lord. They had no personal relationship with Yahweh. They were worthless men using their religion for their own personal gain. Well, this surely seems like a misprint, but alas, it's not. Well, unfortunately, this shocking behavior among church leaders can still happen even today. Pastors can preach sermons. Pastors can administer communion and not know God. They can sing in worship gatherings. They can read the Word. They can close their eyes for prayer, but have no heart for God. Not every ministry worker you meet is a Christian. Did you know that? Is that shocking to hear? There are pastors, there are preachers, there are people in full-time ministry who aren't converted to Christ. And remember, none of us become Christians by what we do. None of us become Christians by what our ministry is. Our outward actions, no matter what they are, no matter what impact they may have, don't save us. Eli's sons were doing a lot of religious activity, but they violated God's commands for their own gain. And here's what was happening. A worshiper would, would bring their offering, uh, they, 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 they would burn it, and, and the priests, Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they would send their servant. The priest's servant would go with, with this famous three-pronged fork, and they'd go there to the offering, and they would stick that fork in the offering, and whatever meat came up, uh, the, the priests would keep for themselves. It's like the story of the pastor who says, I'm going to take all the offering at the end of the service. I'm going to take all of it, and I'm going to take that offering, and I'm going to throw it up high into the air to the Lord. I'm going to offer all of it up to Him, and whatever stays up there belongs to God, and whatever comes back down belongs to me. But see, that's not how it works, does it? All of this, all of the priest's actions here are against God's commands. Back then, when you offered to God your provision, you would give some to the priests. This is true. This was good. Leviticus chapter 7 tells us that the priests would get the breast and the right leg. Now, I don't know why that's what the priests got, but that's what is prescribed there uh, in Scripture. God made provision for the priests. They weren't out going to get another job. They weren't farming. They didn't have their own land. They served the Lord, and they were able to serve Him fully because the people, the, the believers, were giving. They provided out of their offerings and tithes to to the priest's livelihood. This is what we still do today. And we're going to take an offering just because of the order of this particular service. We'll give the offering later. And what that offering goes to is to provide for a meeting places, provide for missions, provide for church planting, provide for, for salaries, for staff, and for, for pastors, and for, for various ministry. That was right to give um, to God and to the priest back then, and it's right to do it today. 
These priests in our scripture today, they were taking a shortcut. They were changing and distorting the, the very law of God. They didn't want boiled or cooked meat. They told their servants, you go, get that fork, you dig into that offering, and I want you to get the best cuts of meat. I want you to get the tenderloin. I want you to get the filet mignon, and we're going to cook it. We're going to barbecue it ourselves. That's essentially what they were doing. Now, that was bad. That's certainly bad. These are the priests, but it gets even worse. Look down at verse 16. They go one step further. Leviticus 3 tells us that the fat was supposed to be burned in honor of Yahweh. But before that fat is even burned, that man with the fork, he would demand the best, the fresh, uncooked pieces of meat from the worshiper. They were taking the wrong meat at the wrong time. And they were taking what was to be offered to God. They were taking essentially what's God's, and they were taking it for themselves. They were completely perverting the worship of God. And in the process, they were intimidating worshipers. They told these servants, if, if those worshipers wouldn't give you the, the, the meat that comes up in the fork, you threaten them. You intimidate them until they give you what we want. I mean, this is shocking. It, uh, it looks like a misprint, but unfortunately it isn't. These weren't convicted criminals. <laughs> they were convicted criminals. We may think, okay, they're not convicted criminals. These were the priests. These were the spiritual leaders. These were to be the spiritual leaders of Israel. And these were the priests, Hophni and Phinehas, stealing from God. It was a shock at Shiloh. And I wish I could just stop here. I wish I could stop here and say they repent. It gets better. There's a, a happy ending for Hophni and Phinehas. But it only gets worse. It's already bad. It's already worse. It gets even worse than worse. Skip down to verse 22. Now Eli was very old. And he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel. And how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. These priests were stealing from God. They were also committing sexual immorality at the very entrance of the sanctuary. They were flaunting their sin right in God's face. This is as bad as it gets. Last week we looked at Hannah's prayer, Hannah's song, and in her song she talks about the prideful and the, the arrogant. She talks about the wicked. Who would have thought that this would include the priests of Israel. Redeemer Church, can this happen today? Can the leaders of the church bring evil into the church? Well, First Peter is a warning to church leaders. Peter writes, I exhort the elders among you, Shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Well, how do we guard ourselves against evil creeping into God's house through the church's leadership? Well, friend, many ways. Let me just give us five brief applications uh, for us this evening. Five brief things in application of this apparent misprint, but this 
real truth, this reality that church leaders can bring evil into the church. Number one, just a reminder that only God's word is authoritative. Only the Bible has authority. Don't take the preacher's word as authority. Just because the preacher gets up with a Bible or gets up at a pulpit like this and preaches, don't take their word as authority. Even here at Redeemer, so even me, even our elders or staff or, or guest preachers, anybody that preaches, know that none of us are infallible. There's no human on the face of the earth that is infallible or perfect. We always take what's preached and we look at the Bible and match up with what's preached with the Bible and they have to be in sync. The Bible is our authority. Number two, Redeemer Church, be careful who you're learning from. Be careful who you're learning from. Our goal here at Redeemer is always to preach faithful sermons from the Bible. So we walk through biblical texts, passage by passage. We're going through 1 Samuel for about 20 weeks between now and May. Our goal is to preach those passages faithful, to preach the point of those passages as the point of the sermons. Our books on the bookstall, those are books by authors that we trust that we're commending to you. But just because you hear a a pastor preach, just because you turn on the television on God TV or some television show and you see a preacher preach, or just because you search on YouTube and find a preacher teaching, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are preaching the truth of the Bible. In fact, they may very well be teaching something opposite to what the Bible teaches. Be very careful who you're learning from. Number three, Pray for protection for ministry leaders. Pray for protection for the leaders in this church. Pray for me. Pray for our our elders. We desperately covet your prayers. Because none of us, none of us are beyond falling off the cliff of our sin. None of us are beyond falling into the traps of the evil one. None of us are, are above falling after the lusts of this world. So pray, pray that we'd be pure. Pray that we'd be a humble eldership. Pray for our community group leaders that, that help us in getting into the scriptures and help us in fellowship and in shepherding. Pray for community group leaders. Pray for our deacons. Pray for the leaders of this church. Pray that we would stand strong even in seasons when we're strongly tempted to abandon our first love. And four, watch your own life. Watch your own life. Redeemer, we are priesthood of all believers. All of us are priests before God. All of us are susceptible as well to living the lives of Hophni and Phinehas. And so ask yourself these questions. Are there ways that I'm perverting the worship of God? Is my Bible study leading merely toward head knowledge? Am I learning a lot of things? But is it actually penetrating my heart? Do my sins of Thursday night contradict with my worship of Friday? Am I serving in ministry maybe with one eye kind of towards God, but one eye towards personal gain or personal acclaim? Watch your own life. And number five, parents. This is directed towards you. Parents, are you correcting your children when they're in sin? Now, it's true this passage isn't primarily about parenting. It's not a gospel-centered guide to disciplining your children. That would be taking a secondary application in the text and making it the main point of the text. And yet at the same time, I think it's worth us pausing even just for a moment. I think it'd be wise for us to look here briefly at a dad and his sons. 
Verse 22 says that Eli kept hearing what his sons were doing in all Israel. That they, what they were doing, not just in all Israel, but to all Israel. Well, here's a question. How and why did Eli not know what was going on? He's the high priest. These are his sons. These are the priests that are running the, the worship there at Shiloh. He was hearing about it. People were talking about it. I mean, this was no small sin. It was against all Israel. It was massive. Eli mentions twice, actually repeats himself. It's, it's not, not good to hear about these things. It's almost as if he's more concerned about what's being talked about rather than what his boys are doing. Well, I mean, Eli does confront them, sort of. Uh, maybe he says something to the effect of, now boys, uh, I, I keep hearing these comments. Everybody's talking about some things. I, I don't really want to mention those things. It's hard to talk about. Um, I really don't want to repeat what they're saying. Uh, but, but, but it's not good. We, we, you, can you guys just, just tone it down? I mean, the tabernacle was a brothel. Sin was being committed instead of sin being confessed, and it was done by the leaders. I mean, Eli kind of warns them, but do you notice he never stops them? Some of you studied this in your, your community groups this past week, and as you look at it even now, what should Eli have done? Maybe you talked about this or even thought about it. I mean, Eli's worried about things being talked about, but he never stops them. He never truly confronts them. He should have taken them out of the priesthood. Sort of excommunicated them out. He should have taken God's side against his son's sin. He doesn't do it. So dads and moms, I know this is hard. I know we we want our kids to like us. We want peace in the home. We want to appease our kids. There are tough moments. But moms and dads, we have to confront our children, we have to discipline them. We have to love them enough to confront them in their sin. We can't let them go. We do this for the sake of their souls. We do this for their souls. We do this out of love. And so mom, dad, how are you doing in this area? I mean, do you need prayer? Do you need wisdom? Ask God to help you. Ask a fellow church member to help you in this area with wisdom, with prayer. Don't forsake the disciplining of your children for God's grace and glory. Those are just five things. There's, there's more. But just five things. We see these priests distorting the worship of God. Not a misprint, but a warning to us. And we see a second apparent misprint in this passage. A second shocking thing. Number two, we see the disturbing word of God. We've seen the distorting of worship. We see the disturbing word of God. Look at verse 25. If someone sins against the man, God will mediate for him. But if, he, but if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now, of course, all sin is primarily against the Lord. But there is a sin that leaves no room for mediation. If man sins against man, there are judges. But what if man sins against God himself? I mean, perverting God's worship was was horrific. I mean, Eli's warning had no effect on his sons. Why? Well, the text tells us the Lord had already decided to kill them. And at that point, obviously no human intercession would have been effective. I mean, do you see what the text is saying? The text doesn't say Eli's sons didn't 
listen at this point, and so God determined to kill them. You notice it doesn't say that here. It says they didn't listen to their dad at this point because Yahweh had decided to put them to death. I mean, their resistance at this point wasn't the rationale for judgment, but the result of the judgment. I mean, they, they wouldn't stop their sin. Eventually, God just gives them over to do what they want to do. Their hearts are hardened. I mean, this is a deeply sobering thought. I mean, this is the worst judgment of God. This is, I, there's the judgments of God where he disciplines us, where he stops us some way. This is the worst kind of judgment. It's a judgment where God says, okay, you can just go. You could just, just go, continue on in your sin. Just, just do it. You like it. This is what you want to do. You can have it. Just follow your heart and see where it leads you. I mean, this is the worst. The Romans 1 kind of judgment. You, you'll be hard and never affected by the word of God again. And we see that warning of judgment continue. Verses 27 all the way down through 36, they show a warning of judgment from a man of God. That, that's a prophet. It's a message of judgment on the priesthood at Shiloh. In all this, you see verse 29, Eli is held accountable. Verse 31, there's a specific prophecy. The priesthood will be cut out of Eli's household. There'll be early death for his family. Verse 33, the priests will all die by the sword of judgment. Only one was spared. This man probably refers to Abiathar, who escaped when Saul killed the priests of Nob later on. In 1 Samuel chapter 22. And then in verse 34, the climax of the oracle, uh, the sign of the judgment will be that both of Eli's sons will be killed on the same day. When we hear that, we're reminded of the sons of Aaron. You might remember in Exodus, they lit the fire in the wrong way and they were consumed by the fire. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, Uzzah, in order to keep the Ark of the Covenant, this holy site, this holy box, in order to keep it from falling, in order to keep it from kind of falling into the mud, he, he reached out and steadied it with his hand. And he died. God put him to death. It sounds like he was doing something noble, but he knew as a priest, he knew you were never to touch the Ark of the Covenant because God is holy and you were never to place your hand on it. He didn't realize that his hand was more unclean than the mud. You know, these words here in 1 Samuel chapter 2 are disturbing. I mean, God will put these priests to death. Judgment is coming to the house of Eli. I mean, this text is sobering. God will hold leaders accountable. It's a sobering text. I look at Hebrews chapter 13 as, a, as an elder, and I know that as an elder of this church, I'm going to be held accountable before God for my shepherding of, of this church. This is a sobering text for me, for any leader, and for any believer. Because lest we point the finger and say, sure, Hophni and Phinehas, oh, they were priests. Oh, sure, they were priests. They deserved death for their sin against the holy and perfect God. Yeah, that, that's right. They deserved it. Their worship was an abomination. Sure, God is holy. But see, Romans says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that the wages of our sin is death. It's the same judgment that Hophni and Phinehas had. Now, the fact that we get to draw breath this evening is evidence of God's grace. 
The fact that we have access to read and hear the Word of God is evidence of God's grace. The fact that we have an opportunity to confess our sins this evening is evidence of God's grace. Oh, God's mercies are new every morning. As one of my friends likes to say, it's always morning somewhere. It's always morning somewhere. It's always time to receive more mercy. It's always time to turn to God in confession. And so friend, if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Christ, if you're a part of the priesthood of all believers and you're engaged in some unrepentant sin, friend, don't wait another day. Don't wait. We're not guaranteed another opportunity. You're not promised tomorrow. If you know you need to repent of your sin, don't assume you can schedule it for next Tuesday at 2 p.m. to repent. You're not guaranteed of that day. Turn to him today. Maybe you're sitting here tonight. Maybe you've been a part of Redeemer for a while. Maybe you're just new. Maybe you found out about our evening service and you came in and maybe you feel right now as I'm preaching that I'm preaching directly to you. Know that God is speaking to you. Know that he is speaking to you and calling you to repent. Turn today. Turn before it's too late. Turn this evening. And he will forgive you. Now let this text be a warning to you. Be warned at this disturbing word of God. He makes no mistakes. There's no misprint in this text. Our God is holy and he is perfect and he deserves our worship. Turn to him. Be warned by the disturbing word of God, but be comforted at the same time. God is at work. God is at work. That's what we see in this next apparent misprint, the the third and final shocking thing. We see the quiet work of God. We see in all of this the quiet work of God. We expect God to make a bigger splash. He's all-powerful. He holds the whole world in his grasp. He's all-majestic. We expect the text to say he's done some big and grand and mighty deed. But by now, we should understand, going through Sermon on the Mount last year and now going through 1 Samuel, we should understand that weakness is the way that God moves in ways that, that we wouldn't do, that we wouldn't move. God acts in ways that we would never act. His ways are not our ways. You see, there was a fourth priest in Shiloh. He wore a linen ephod, the the suit of a priest. The abuses at Shiloh were shocking, but in the heart of one young boy, one teenager, one priest, God was working in his heart. Did you notice in the text how it moves back and forth between the sin at Shiloh among Hophni and Phinehas and Samuel? It moves back and forth, back and forth between sin and Samuel. Verse 11, the boy Samuel was ministering. Then you have the sins in worship. Then in verse 18, Samuel was ministering. And then you have the sins of sexual immorality. And then if you look just ahead of verse, chapter 3, verse 1, you see Samuel was ministering. He goes back and forth, back and forth between the sin of Hophni and Phinehas and Eli and Samuel, this young perhaps teenager even at this time, who was serving and was ministering. The text shows us a complete contrast. Samuel was doing the work of God. And I love the tender moment there. Every year at annual worship, Hannah, his mom, would get to see him and would bring him a new, a new priest suit. And she would give it to him as he worshipped. God was quietly working through this young man, this boy. It's not through the big name priests, not through the nation's current leaders, but through the boy who was dropped off by a a priestly, or for a priestly adoption by an ordinary woman who made a vow. 
Well, this boy was growing in grace. Well, what does God do about immoral leaders? Well, he will cast them out and he will raise up faithful leaders in their place. Well, God finishes his prophetic words to Eli, verse 35. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. I don't know who the prophet thought he was talking about. I don't know what Eli thought he meant. Some say the author has Samuel in mind. I think it's more likely in light of 1 Kings chapter 2 that the author's pointing to the priests who would serve David, the anointed one. That would be Zadok and his priestly line. But from our vantage point, there's also more to it. God is saying that this faithful priest will do what is according to my house. And there's only one who did that perfectly. Look back at verse 26. Maybe this stuck out to you. It says, Samuel continued to grow in both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Who does that remind you of? Yeah, Jesus. The New Testament writers actually revert back to Samuel to describe Jesus in Luke chapter 2, verse 52. The same thing is said of our Savior, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. A thousand years before Jesus, God was quietly at work in these days. And then a thousand years later, there was another little boy growing up quietly. No one would have guessed this. The little boy was the Savior of the world. But it was. It was God incarnate. God who became flesh. Jesus would come and he would be the faithful high priest. He would do what Eli never did. When he saw the abuses in the house of God, what did he do? Well, he cleanses the temple. He's the faithful high priest who wouldn't let sin go unpunished. Now, these priests... And our texts were sinful shepherds not attending to the flock but to their own shameful gain. But the Lord Jesus Christ is our faithful shepherd. I learned this past week that the word for shepherd in Farsi, the Iranian language, is closely connected to the word that means up all night. The good shepherd is up all night looking after his sheep. I love that picture. As I've had trouble sleeping certain nights, I've remembered that the Lord Jesus never sleeps, that the Lord Jesus never slumbers, but is always alert to his sheep all night long. These priests were engaging in sin all night, but there would be a good shepherd who would come and care for his sheep every hour of every day. God is at work even at Shiloh, even here in 1 Samuel chapter 2. It may feel like for you personally, that you're living in, in Shiloh, the darkness has come. And there's sin all over this text, and there's sin all over this world. But there's hope. There's hope. There's, a, there's, there's almost like there's a whisper throughout this passage. Look at Samuel. Look at Samuel. Look at Samuel. I mean, in the midst of all this, in the midst of the sin of the priests, there was one who was faithful. Well, there's no misprint in our text tonight. There's a faithful priest who would come, and ultimately a thousand years after Samuel, the greatest high priest would come. And not only would he not sin, but he would die for sin. 
He would go to the cross. He would go to the cross willingly. He would march to the cross willingly to die as a sacrifice for the sin of believers. He would take the full wrath of God and all of believers' sin from all times, past, present, and future there on the cross. And then on the third day after being buried, he would rise triumphantly from the grave, proving that that sacrifice was complete. Oh, he is the shepherd who died for his sheep. And if you don't know this shepherd, friend, if you don't know this shepherd, turn to him in repentance and faith, and he will save you. He's the only one who could save you. And believing, friend, fear not. Our great shepherd is watching us now, this evening, tomorrow, and forevermore. And one day, one day, this greatest high priest will come back again for his people. And until then, we wait by faith knowing that he is true to his word and knowing that he will come. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you for the grace you've given us through Jesus Christ. We don't deserve your love, and yet you pour it out to us. You've done great things, and one day we will weep no more. Well, now as we worship you through the offering and in song, help us to exalt the name of Jesus here. And as we leave tonight with our Savior and great High Priest Jesus be on our minds and on our hearts and would all that we do be for Him. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.